hope you're having a fantastic day and a wonderful week. Welcome to another episode of We Aren't Dead Yet. I'm Emily Armstrong, creator of the TTRPG system Quests and Quarrels, as well as the settings Beckettville, Culinary Punk, and Elder Space. I'm here with Dazzle Cat. Hello, I am Dazzle Cat. I am the creator of the TTRPG Meaty Bones, as well as the worlds of Pangorio and Hypnosium. I am here with Sapa. Hi there, my name is Safa Burnell. I'm a best-selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author and an editor for a small press. I've been in the fiction sphere for more than 15 years. And I'm going to remind everybody today, don't worry, there's always something we can do. Because we, we aren't, aren't dead yet. All right, everybody, before we dive into magic systems today, we have two pieces of news. News piece number one, Macabre and Monstrous, a horror anthology of eldritch space, myth monsters, and forest frights, is available now. If you want to read our stories, if you want to see how we do this thing that we do, we would love to have you read Macabre and Monstrous, a science fiction, fantasy, and myth punk collection of short fiction which will unsettle, frighten, and terrify then lead you through the darkest part of the night to early dawn. Fellplumes and Salvager's Loop are by Emily Armstrong. Harvest of Horror is by Daz, a.k.a. K.S. Bischoff. Shout out to the blog post on Wednesday. Make sure you are following us on social media and following our blog at vredamedia.ca. And the Lamia and Whiskey and Sinner's Blood are by me, Safa Burnell. Please read our shit. You can find it at Books 2 number two read.com slash macabre and monstrous that's books to read.com slash m-a-c-a-b-r-e-a-n-d-m-o-n-s-t-r-o-u-s and another piece of news oh no the golden age of ttrpgs is dead well according to dungeons and dragons historian and author ben riggs anyway he seems to set the TTRPG world on fire against him by making this rather long announcement that the golden age of TTRPGs is dead because Dungeons & Dragons is on the rocks, according to him. And so everybody has been like, what? There's more to TTRPGs than just Dungeons & Dragons? I can see a little bit, you know, D&D has been... I think that noise explains more than any words that I could say. You know, there's been some issues with D&D, like we know that. I'm not a huge TTRPG person, but even just from my layman's point of view, outside of the TTRPG ring, looking in, I can tell that Dungeons & Dragons is um, a little bit on the, 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 the ropes, as we would say. Uh, but at the same time... I don't see how that reflects on the rest of TTRPGing. Like, people can pick other game systems. I think it's just, isn't it just the fact that there's no clear winner on outside of D&D? &D, where is the place that the most people go to for their TTRPG rules? Yeah, I think, I think that's kind of what it's going to boil down to is where people are just spreading out to. He, at one point, I pulled up a quote that he says, quote, TTRPGs will become less interesting, less exciting, less creative. And despite all the new systems, it will also grow less diverse as it becomes even harder to make money in a TTRPG community broken into factions, unquote. I can't imagine a place where that happens. I think he's talking about perhaps the smaller TTRPGs that are going to come out of it. There might be a lot of, I mean, we see a lot of overlap already. I think people are going to settle into their preferred system. It's just going to happen. And it's been happening for years. There's all sorts of systems already that people play. On one hand, like just to play devil's advocate here for a second, I can see how fractionalizing the player base into a whole bunch of smaller camps does mean a smaller potential markets, you know, and there's so much more work that would have to be done in order to make all of this stuff system agnostic so people can plug in whatever rules are, you know, around the table today. And so I think in that frame of reference, yes, there is going to be a point in time where there's this sort of wild west age where everyone and their table are homebrewing or creating their own rule sets and not all of those rule sets not all of those games are going to survive not all of them are going to make it and eventually some fairly larger fishes are going to come out of the pond overlap and interconnecting has been an essential part of ttrpgs since the very first ones the very beginning 
there's always been offshoots that come and go as moods change. Any game can have longevity that way due to its fans. And that's where the longevity of, of every TTRPG is, is in the is in the fans, which is basically the dungeon masters wanting to create in it and the players wanting to play with what the dungeon master creates in that system. So it's it's such a broad overview thing that you can't just say, well, Dungeons and Dragons is going down, so everybody is. In fact, Shadow Dark, Cobalt Press's Tales of the Valiant, and Matt Cobalt's MCDM RPG grossed millions in crowdfunding. They all been positively reviewed. And it's a negative quote by Ben Riggs because it's a sign that the industry has peaked. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I just don't see how creativity is going to go down or interest is going to go down because of new systems. I'm just seeing more and more interesting systems popping up almost daily, it feels like. Yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think that creativity flourishes when you release a few of the rules, but not all of them. And... It's a little bit like telling people to write a short story. Well, write a short story. Oh, what do you want it to be about? I don't know, whatever you want. Uh, that can often be paralyzing. A lot of people end up just kind of staring at the wall going, I don't know what to write about because they're just sort of like stuck. They've got too many options. And I, I don't know if that's what he was thinking about, that idea of like the second that you take away all of the rules, all of a sudden it gets a lot harder to figure out where you're going to go and what you're going to do. You know, you can be paralyzed by too much choice. Uh, but I just don't see that happening here. You know, there are still, like, we're going to talk about magic systems today. There are still some definitions and different, you know, tropes and different things that work and or don't. Well, his, his main prediction is based on that the, this um, new edition of uh, Dungeons & Dragons coming out this year, later this year. He's saying that, oh, no, now you've done this. We've Everything's been built on 5e for so long, and now that's going to lead to... All these layoffs at Wizards. Uh, hello, Wizards is owned by Hasbro. That has nothing to do with the state of TTRPGs. It's just Hasbro is being so, um, in my opinion, ridiculous in what they have done that they have forcibly opened up a can of worms and broadened the scope for everybody else to fill in the gap that they're making. Yeah, some of which is what they've done to themselves and part of it is what's just happened with the market and everything like that around it. You know. Just to be fair, it is true that you're diversifying the market, which means that there's going to be less people in um, in a confined space. You know, like, that's true. You know, there are going to be different systems. And I think it's more about him going, well, I don't know what system is going to come out on top, so I don't know where my largest audience is going to be. Your largest audience will find if, if okay, so this is a, a literary thing. It may or may not work with TTRPGs, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, your largest audience are the people that find your work and like it. And if they find your work, if they read one of your stories, if they, you know, play one of your adventures and things and go, wow, that was really fun, they will look for you where you are. They'll find you. They'll go looking for you. Then So you better make sure that you're available. Not only is that applicable to TTRPGs, like... That is the way that you have to run as an indie TTRPG person. If you don't have a like personal audience that is interested and excited for your TTRPG work, you don't have an audience. You don't. You can't make money. You can't sell your stuff. Like people need to know you exist. <laughs> exactly. Yep. All right. Should we get into our main topic? Yes, we are talking about magic systems. We are talking about magic systems specifically in TTRPGs. And then I'll be bringing in some info about magic systems in the literature. All right, so I'll start off with a um, quick definition of what a magic system is. A magic system is a framework within a fictional world that governs the rules, limitations, and mechanics of magic. It serves as the backbone for integrating fantastical elements seamlessly into literature and TTRPGs. So for literature, uh, magic system enables authors to build vivid and dynamic, consistent worlds. Whether it's a soft world build with slight definition and vibes, or a magic as mundane and magic realism, all the way to the hard world-built magic systems, which influence the plot and setting in massively intricate ways. For TTRPGs, they provide game masters and players with a structured foundation for incorporating magic into the gameplay experience. A robust magic system can shape 
shape the cultural, societal, and historical aspects of a world, making it more immersive and enhancing the storytelling by introducing elements of conflict, intrigue, and wonder that are unique to the magical framework. Yeah, so there's a lot to magic systems, right? There is, you know, and although kind of literature is my kettle of fish, in case you haven't noticed, it really does depend on whether or not you're doing a soft or a hard world build. And I'll go over that a little bit uh, later when it's my turn. But uh, there is an incredible difference to the amount of work and the amount of just kind of written down rules you'll have between something which is just a soft world build a little bit like spirited away where magic is clear magic is present magic is there magic is being used consistently on a consistent basis but there's no definition of what that magic looks like it just exists you know and a lot of literature that comes out of the folklore traditions tends to be softer it exists you know, uh, and then you kind of have magic realism, which is this sort of other thing, which is about realism of character, realism of human identity, realism of storyline, but has elements of the fantastic within it, uh, which comes out of Latin American tradition. And then you got the hard stuff where, you know, basically you could pull out that magic system, put it into something like a TTRPG, and it would work. So what are the components to add magic to your world? Let's set the stage. First off, cultural integration. This lets you showcase how magic is woven into the practices, traditions, and beliefs of different societies within your fictional world. And then from there, you go on to the geographical variations, um, where you would highlight how magic manifests differently in various regions, creating diverse magical landscapes. An example of this would be like ley lines. How do ley lines work? You, ley lines, you know, where they flow through the world. Nodes would be like a specific center all on its own. It's just a simple node of magic. And then there's the conflict framework. How the rules and limitations of the magic system can be leveraged in conflicts, tensions, and challenges for the characters. Basically, how to fight with magic. Where are your fireballs? Rays of frost, counter spells, and, and finally, the plot catalyst. You use this to explore how magical elements can serve as catalysts for key plot points, driving character arcs and narrative developments. So I think this is an important thing to look at when we're looking at magic systems that you have to see culturally what is magic for this culture that you're creating within this work, whether it's literature or TTRPG. Is this something that, you know, everybody can do? Is this something that only a few people can do? How difficult is it in comparison to everyday tasks? You know, I think it's really important on, you know, framing your society by seeing how your society deals with the fantastic. That can be an incredible thing in speculative literature. And it's a huge mainstay of the kind of overarching genre. Um, Geographical variation definitely reminded me a little bit more of, you know, different mythological pantheons and folklore kind of types there. And I know for TTRPGs, it's, you know, basically, you know, when you're creating different settings, you're going to create different ways of looking at things because just like in a video game, like all of a sudden you're in the desert world. Well, there's not going to be a ton of water spells. But yeah, and then, of course, you know, how magic is used in battle. That's really cool. It's like, yes, let me shoot fire from my fingertips. I want to char this stupid little sapient creature that thinks I'm dinner alive. Then how you use magic to develop plot or whether you use magic to develop the plot at all. Comes in a two. How strong is magic and how are you going to use it? How are you going to integrate it into the narrative? Uh, is it going to be something where it's it's like... You know, Gale in Baldur's Gate 3, where all of a sudden his Netherese orb is this big, gigantic plot point. Spoiler alert. Um, but I mean, it happens like the first minute of Act 1, so I'm not going to worry about spoilers on that one. If you don't know that Gale has an orb in his chest, you have not played the game. Um, you know, is it something that becomes this big, giant plot point, or is it just like in magic realism, something that happens in the background, the same way that somebody would use a microwave, there's that little burst of magic, there's the fairy in the backyard, there's the, you know, Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which is one of the best pieces of short fiction in the entire history of humanity. Um, it just really is. And it's the perfect definition of magic realism. Because in magic realism, magic is just mundane. 
It's nothing special. It's just part of the fabric of the world, just the same way that oxygen is and water is and everything else. And magic realism, it's more about the realism of people being people than it is about highlighting magic. So I'm making that distinction because it's a hugely important one because in magic realism basically breaks a lot of these other rules. Um, so when we're talking, there's a specific difference between magic realism and soft world building versus hard world building. Yeah, I think with a lot of the points, it's going to be a take it with a grain of salt. Uh, while there are general rules, I guess, for magic systems, uh, rules are meant to be broken. And there are tons of genres of magic systems that purposefully break those rules of hard magic and do what they want. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the only rule that you absolutely cannot break, regardless of whether it's literature or TTRPGs, is you cannot confuse people. That is the number one thing, and uh, the thing that tends to, you know, speaking as an editor with over a decade of experience here, uh, with a lot of people early in their writing careers, the number one thing when they're world building is that they're confusing people or not remaining consistent. And that's where issues come. You need whatever you do with magic, you need to maintain its consistency throughout your entire thing. Like if, you know, Final Fantasy VII, there is the threat of a giant meteor because Sephiroth cast meteor to basically destroy all life on the planet. Well, that was this big gigantic spell that took an entire act and a half of the... Um, entire game for him to get to. That was his goal, and now you have to stop it. But for the rest of the game, in the sky, you've got this giant fireball just hanging out like the moon, slowly getting closer and closer and closer. And yet the rest of the magic and everything is consistent. You know, he still needed materia. He still needed to do all of these different things and go through these different hoops in order to cast the spell in the first place. Um, but there's still a consistency there, even though he has this upper level spell in his back pocket that he could only cast once. Um, so there is still consistency there, even if there's different levels. You know, just the number one thing is don't confuse people. If this is how magic works in one of your books, this is how magic has to work unless something plot wise has happened to completely annihilate and change it. Yeah. Don't start changing things to fit the plot points. You need to work your plot around the way that you've already set your magic up. People don't tend to like when you retcon things in your <laughs> in your stories. Uh, readers tend to dislike that. So try to set up your magic system as early as possible, I think, uh, so that you have that in your mind when you're doing your plotting, whether you're doing uh, literature or TTRPGs. And then if you want to make some drastic big change, there needs to be a fairly drastic big plot point, campaign, adventure. There needs to be something that paradigm shifts and shakes things down so that they modify, not necessarily naturally, but they modify in such a way that the readers or the experiencers of that media cannot miss it. Yeah, if you're changing a natural law of the world, it needs to be a natural disaster level event. And I don't mean destruction, I just mean that level of importance or change. I know, I think it's an important thing to recognize when it comes to world building for especially something like a novel series. If you are writing a series of novels, you're going to be working with the same world build and the same magic for years on end. And if that's not something that you can handle, if that if you're working on the same projects for the next seven years is going to somehow, you know, harp your style or things like that, then maybe this is about a one-off, you know, novel or, you know, some shorter pieces and then you let it lie. But especially in a novel environment, you're going to be working in the same world build for potentially a decade. You know, between writing the novels, which takes time, world building into it, doing all of your pre-production, and then once you get into the editing process, like if you're going traditional or small press, then you're working with an editor for months, if not over a year, on each project, and things are going to change. And the way that you do things are going to change, so you don't want to write too far in advance. You want to have the skeleton of what you're going to do, but you don't necessarily want to have 
too many things later on in the series, quote unquote, set in stone because stone is porous. Stone can be dissolved by acid and the acid of editorial nature is just going to hurt. And so when we're looking at magic and literature, that's why I like sites like World Anvil. Shout out to World Anvil for being an incredible place where you can build your magic system where you can build your world build in a evocative way with really cool designs and anything you can think of. World Anvil is an incredible place to light up your forge, grab your hammer and start world building. If you want to trial World Anvil for yourself, if you want to get into that incredibly vibrant community of a lot of in just wonderful, amazing people, we do have an affiliate link. Uh, it is the Beautiful Machines affiliate link. So thank you to World Anvil for giving us access to that link. If you click on that link and sign up for World Anvil, we will be getting a kickback from that. So full disclosure, it is an actual affiliate link. Uh, and that is one way you can support our podcast. Yes, and it works great for TTRPGs as well. Oh, yeah. I think it, you know World Anvil does incredibly well for TTRPGs. I think it does almost better for TTRPGs than it does for uh, you know, it's like a novelist like myself, just for the way that it's set up. But it does have a manuscript software that is part of the World Anvil experience. And that is how I write all my books, including Judge of Mystic series, which book three, uh, Book of Revels is the one where I'm going, oh, because that... Yeah, things happen. Guess what? Things happen, things change. And when you go back and realize that the book you thought was book one is actually book two, and then you have to write a book one, which fills in world building, that means book three is going to change. And that brings us into things like narrative tone, character development, the purpose of magic in a narrative. And so just like you're going to develop a narrative tone for the entire body of your work, you want to make sure that your magical tone fits if you're doing something grimdark, I'm expecting to see some form of necromancy, blood magic, really kind of visceral magic that's part of that system. If you are doing something that's more just sort of bright and heroic and like nightcore and that kind of thing, then I'm expecting something whimsical. I'm expecting something joyful and, you know, with lots of pretty colors and lots of fun. And maybe, you know, you're summoning a pixie and the pixie is going to do X, Y, Z. And like every single time you, you flick a wand to chop the vegetables it's actually a whole bunch of invisible you know creatures that are you know chop 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 <laughs> and doing it for you and it can be really cute i love that <laughs> no, i want that <laughs> no, i want like the slicey dicey spell to actually be this invisible you know this invisible creature that just loves slicing things <laughs> Really hyped about knives. <laughs> <laughs> you just, there's these creatures that just love knives. And the fact that you're like, yeah, can you cut all of these vegetables for my dinner? They're like, you really do care. You love me. You know, it's like, now I want that somewhere. Let me sharpen them for you, please. Please let me sharpen them for you. <laughs> and then the poor soul that interrupts their food prep and all those knives all of a sudden turn. <laughs> <laughs> turns into a dungeon battle that is what we would call a tonal misdirection uh you know and you can do things like tonal in misdirection but you just have to make sure that your magic is going to fit the tone of the entire work and so i think this is one of actually the most significant things that you can decide early on when you're building a system where are your extremes where are the extremes in tone? What is the best kind of thing that can happen? What is the best kind of thing that magic can do? What is the worst kind of thing magic can do? And that's going to dictate a lot of basically the kinds of stories you can tell, the type of characterizations you're going to have, the plots, the setting itself. You know, uh, for something like magic realism, you've got magic is mundane. Basically, magic is like the everyday thing. And, and magic realism comes from a incredibly rich tradition of Latin literature, literature from South America. And also you get uh, some magic realism coming out of Japan in a huge way in, in the 20th century. But it comes from this wealth of culture where that idea of what we would in other places call superstitious things, where little bits of folklore that you live with every day, they're just still part of life. And so that's where magic realism comes from. It's that tradition of, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of the way I was raised with my great aunts always leaving out a bowl of porridge for the Nisa on Christmas time. 
because you want to feed your Nisa. And if you feed them well, then they're going to make sure your milk doesn't sour and that your cheese is nice and, and that your animals are okay for the year. And uh, that, of course, is a Scandinavian thing. But that part of everyday living is an incredibly fascinating thing. Well, if that's how magic works in your world, then you're not having it go to the extremes that Sephiroth did in Final Fantasy VII with a meteor that's going to destroy the planet. Your big bad is not going to be some mage somewhere that's trying to raise the dead. Um, now, if you're doing something that's a lot more epic, then all of a sudden you are going to have, you know, the ability to go to extremes. And you have to make sure that the entire tone of your narrative matches with that system. But I definitely, for me, with the Judge of Mystics world, barring the fact that I am neither part of the Latin community, nor am I part of certain marginalized groups, I would define the judge of mystics realm closer to magic realism than anything else you know aries is part of every day the gods are part of every day they are driving cars they are going places they are using weapons like guns you know and swords you know magic is part of it but i'm not defining it in the same thing magic is part of the fabric of the mundane existence of living as a mystic folk and so I took a lot of inspiration from magic realism when it came to the Judge of Mystic Sega. Uh, and so I would define it closer to a softer world build, uh, especially since I don't intend to go very in depth in exactly how the magic works because it's unnecessary to the plot. Magic exists, it's there, it's nebulous, that is, that is what it is. And then when it comes to character building, it's more about that definition between you know the mundane and the divine and that's more of where i'm playing with because you could almost call it god punk so when you're looking at literature when you're looking at character development with magic that tone is going to reflect what you do with the character and so that tone really is the first thing because again too like we're going to talk about with the ttrpg sphere how ubiquitous is magic is it something that everybody does? Is it something everyone has access to? Or are there tiers and stratifications of society that hold magic behind some form of secret knowledge, you know, a little bit like the mystery religions and different things like that we got out of, um, you know, Indo-European society since the beginning of time? <clears throat> and so what is your character's relationship with that magic? You know, how does the character grow with magic? Is magic an alien thing? Is it something outside of their natural experience? And thus they are inhabiting, they're bringing in this sort of other force to kind of combine with themselves. Or is it something that they're intrinsically capable of? And so if you're looking at like intrinsic capability towards magic, what I would say in a soft world build perspective, you would look at something like the elves in Lord of the Rings. They're just naturally magical. It's not that they have to stop and do spell work and study and get a degree. I graduated from Elf U. <laughs> they just naturally inhabit certain types of natural magic, including, you know, ways of singing and different things like that, because especially with um, magic in Lord of the Rings, a lot of it actually kind of stems from the creation myth of um, this great song. And so you get some chants and different things like that. And the universe is this great song. And uh, Lord of the Rings, and as much as Tolkien is such a hard world builder when it comes to so many things and was so intricate and is the reason why so much high fantasy has specific rules and specific races and specific ways of viewing things, Tolkien actually developed a very soft magic system. You can have a hard world build on a lot of, you know, geopolitical things and map things and the different species that you have, you know, different historical things, you know, concerning hobbits, you know, and all these different things. You can have that, but your magic system can still be this vaguely undefined folklore inspired magic system. And in literature, that's where you find a lot of soft magic building. It's literature, which is coming from the traditions of folklore and mythology. And when you're coming from a mythological framework or from a folklorish framework, you're not defining things specifically unless, you know, one example of, of an actual firm definition of, say, a spell or something is in the, uh, the movie November, where this elderly woman is giving this man a love spell so that he can trick this lady in the village into marrying him. And there's this very specific amount of stuff that you can get in a lot of folklorish traditions. 
including the um, the Slavic traditions that I married into, where you know my spouse's grandmother still held all of that traditional kind of what we would consider as magic very firm to her heart. And so you can have that sort of soft ability until you get into certain kind of what some people would call spell work or things like that. But oftentimes when you have a soft magic build, you're not actually explaining how a spell works. It is an essence. It is a part of things. It is a feeling and a sensation. And it's more about those sensational moments than it is about, you know, something like in Harvest of Horrors by our wonderful Daz here, uh, where she actually has a magic spell being conducted very intricately within the narrative. Well, that's a hard world build. That's not soft at all. And that's not to say soft is when one is better than the other. It's they're all just different flavors of the same ice cream. And then just it's just being consistent with it once you find it. So what is the purpose of that magic? You know, is the purpose of that magic to kind of color the background or, you know, we have um, other sort of if you're looking at soft magic, you're looking at Lord of the Rings, you were looking at Spirited Away, you're looking at Avatar The Last Airbender. You know, yes, people can explain, yeah, well, you know, the magic works because you come from a sort of society that, you know, the waterbenders all do waterbending, you know, and unless there's some form of genetic com component where people sort of marry outside of their original culture, which happens in the legend of Korra, um, where all of a sudden you have these, you know, firebending families marrying into earthbending families and vice versa. And all of a sudden the children are coming out. One of them's a firebender. One of them's an earthbender. Um, for the most part, it was, well, you were born into a sort of monocultural situation, and that's the sort of magic that you'll do. That's still a very soft world build. It's still not necessarily defined by certain really, really intricate rules. It's just, you know, Katara learns how to waterbend. She learns from scrolls. She learns from people. She learns from situations. But they're not writing down, you have to do things exactly like this. And if you don't, then, you know, something wicked this way will come. Um, although we have a whole bunch of magic spells and something like Harry Potter, it's still a fairly soft world build when it comes to magic and the way that magic is used. Even if it's ubiquitous within the culture that they've got going on within the wizarding world. Something that's a hard magic system. Full Metal Alchemist, I think, is good. Full Metal Alchemist is absolutely hard. Yeah. Um, is a hard magic system. It's actually taken from um, alchemical texts in the medieval age. So Full Metal Alchemist actually takes um, historical alchemy and converts it into an anime and a magic system within the anime. And it works in that direct way. And very hard, would I would say, would be Brandon Sanderson's uh, The Stormlight Archive series. That is extreme hard magic. Yeah. Also, another hard magic system, I would say, would be The King Killer Chronicles by uh, Patrick Rothfuss. Some Ursula Le Guin novels can be quite hard when it comes to, you know, magic, especially when it comes to the true names of things. But really, when you're looking at that kind of that hard magic build outside of a TTRPG sphere where you have to know exactly how finger sigils work in order to perform magic missile, just in case a goblin is chewing on one of your fingers in a battle, um, you're really looking at a lot of high fantasy. You're looking at some contemporary fantasy too. You know, you're looking at some of the, the vampires versus the werewolves kind of paranormal romantic a fiction out there where they have very specific rituals. <laughs> but uh, really, you're looking at Sanderson. Sanderson is the big guy. So far, we've been talking about magic, either in literary fiction, aka magic realism, or in fantasy literature. And that really is where magic lives. <laughs> you know, magic lives within fantasy literature, but magic also tends to live in science fantasy. And Science fantasy is basically where you're getting into, well, it's science, but it looks like magic. Or it's magic, but it looks like science. And there is something to be said about people who create fantasy literature where magic and science are basically the same thing. You're just one of them is mystical and the other one is usually electric. 
that kind of goes back to me for to world building and tone as to whether or not you're uh you're doing something which magic is just a replacement for a microwave yeah which gets into magic tech yeah you're getting into some warhammer 40k kind of you know kind of vibes in there too uh, with, you know, there being this really firm religious system, while at the same time, a lot of it is kind of biotech science, but given a sort of almost religious connotation. Yeah, I th- I think it's a full spectrum of where science and magic can fall when you're world building. Yeah, and I think the plausibility of how the magic or the science works really is the kind of case maker there. How plausible is it? You know, when I'm writing my cyberpunk series, I tend to try to make the technology as plausible as possible. I try to extrapolate what kind of, if knowing what we have now, what can we expect in the 2150s, given the following historical events, which will be happening in my world, which creates an alternate kind of future timeline. And I like to dive into what is potentially possible, which is why when I was writing Neon Lieben, I was doing a lot of research on quantum computing and different things like that and AI. Um, and of course, Neon Lieben was released in 2021, right before this huge upswing in AI. As I write the sequel to Neon Lieben, I'm having to up my science game because things that I thought would not exist until the 2080s started existing now, which was kind of annoying, but also at the same time was also really like, hey, I did it. <laughs> yeah. And it, you still give that magical feel because the technology being so much more advanced in cyberpunk, I tend to stay away from likening science to magic, just because that's not the genre. But definitely, you're absolutely right with science fantasy. Cyberpunk tends to be more gritty, and that tends to kind of venture away from magic. But science fantasy and different sorts of like futuristic magic, you're you're right on there. Um, and it all goes back to that idea of tone. Yeah, like with Elder Space, there's absolutely science there is spaceships and travel through space but there's also a form of magic system with the um artifacts like i said it's a it's a large spectrum and it's not a single pin on that i think you're putting two pins one for where your science falls one for where your magic can fall and it's sort of a venn diagram between the two you know and you can combine them like we see in both Fell Plumes and Salvager's Loop. But I would say Salvager's Loop, probably you see it more viscerally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that combination between the science that is built, you know, the ships around them and things like that. And, you know, that experience Corvin has. And then the magic, which kind of taints the world. And I think really the first thing you have to decide is whether or not magic comes from some form of divinity or demonics. Or if magic is just another scientific, almost like a different biology that's another system of science that's part of the world. Like you can take it in different ways. You can have completely atheistic magic. Or you can play around with really dark elder gods (laughs) and various deities and things like that and make it a spiritual experience. And I think that comes into the creation of magic and literature and TTRPGs in a huge way. It's sort of the same thing of when you look at a vampire, there are incredibly different takes on whether a vampire is a biological creature, whether a vampire is a spiritual being, or whether a vampire is created by some form of science. And you see incredibly divergent view of vampires and things like that, uh, the more that you go in that regard, you know, is this Anne Rice's vampires? Is this uh, the vampire in ultraviolet? Actually, uh, Peter Watts did uh, Echopraxia. Uh, Peter Watts is a Canadian science fiction writer. He's a very hard sci-fi author. And uh, he wrote about vampires and things like that in an incredible way. His books are available online. You can read them. He actually puts all of his uh, ebooks on his website for people just to read. I mean, kudos to him for doing that. I uh, I don't make enough money to be that uh, ge- that generous. Um, please buy our shit. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to support us in a way that is not financial, you can always like and subscribe. You can follow us on social media individually or as Wadi. More information on that at veritamedia.ca slash Wadi. That is V-R-A-E-Y-D-A-M-E-D-I-A dot C-A slash 
W-A-D-Y. Thanks to Freda Media for hosting We Aren't Dead Yet. If you like speculative fiction, if you like science fiction and fantasy stuff that has a bit of grit, but it fights apathy, then you definitely want to read the Vreda body of works, which include my own. So obviously a reason to shout out about that. You can also go to your local public library and ask them to bring in Macabre and Monstrous. That is another way to support us. If you yourself are like, oh man, I'd love to buy your book, but you know, money's a little tight right now. Things are a little tight in the January slump, things like that. I understand. We get it. Please go to your local public library and give them a shout. Say, hey, there's these authors called Emily Armstrong, K.S. Bischoff, and Safa Burnell. They're fantastic and we would like to read those books please bring them in and a lot of acquisitions librarians want to know what the public want and they will purchase those and bring them in and that is an excellent way to support us we do actually have a merch store thank you to fourth wall for inviting us to be part of the fourth wall community we do have a merch store which has stuff from the judge of mystic cycle and also has we aren't dead yet merchandise you can get everything from mouse pads to sweaters to really nice warm woolly cardigan sweaters and things like that too i can attest i am wearing the mirabex pangorio sweatshirt right as we speak. It is such good quality. It is so comfortable. It is so warm. Really nice. They're Gildens. You know Gildan. You know them. You love them. And I can say the magnets are really nice. The pins are really nice. The Culinary Punk pins that are currently in the shop are limited edition. They will not be around forever. Uh, we, I will be switching them out every so often with a new collection of little creatures from Culinary Punk. Uh, so eventually you'll have your own feastiary of pins. And speaking of TTRPGs, let's move on to magic in TTRPGs. So does how do we talk about magic systems from a game design perspective? You have to make decisions. And the first decision is, how does magic work from beginner to the greatest master at all points in between? That's extremely important. So you need to show progressions to keep your players um, going and thrilled with their characters. They're always excited, eager to level to get to that next new thing the next new magic that they can do. The next thing you need to decide is how magic relates to the mundane or non-magic uh, characters. Are, or do you even have them? Are you making a, a, a system that is all magic users of various kinds? Or are you making one where you complement non-magical characters? And so you want to keep that extremely in mind for balance. Balance is key. You don't want somebody to come out and say, hey, I made it to level three. Now I'm an all-powerful goddess because I got these superpowers. You can't have somebody swinging like wooden stakes and doing three damage per hit while somebody is sending down waves of sunbeams from the sky for 52 damage a hit. Like You really, really need to balance your magic systems. Exactly. Balance between magic and the mundane is probably the most important one because that's where players can feel useless and then they'll never play the other characters, they'll only play magic characters. And so then you lose the variety in the game that you wanted to be essential to your, to your game to begin with. And this leads directly into player agency. And in this particular case, player agency is the ability to customize their character which is very important. Players love their characters and they love all the things and they love to be on that journey as their character goes from level one to level 20 or whatever level you're, you want your system to go to. And that also includes what type of magic user they're going to be. Do you only have one type? If there's only one way to do magic, then everybody is going to be the same character. What are the different flavors that they can add to their character to differentiate themselves from others. You have to have distinctions. Distinctions to allow people to be themselves. Making distinctions in the types of magic and how people can use magic in different ways, even if all magic derives from the same place in your setting, people could use that differently to achieve different things. Letting your players have that flavor and that little bit of, even if it's just a visual difference, 
makes a world of difference to player agency, at least making it feel like there's a difference. So we're talking cosmetic differences, right? Like the, the spell still works the same way, whether or not it's a snowball, you know, hitting for, you know, 2d4 damage, or whether it's a ball of poofy flowers from like, it's, it's just the cosmetics around it that the players get to kind of modify and adjust and not the actual spell itself, like the, the actual like brass tacks, right? Or you can essentially have two different skills that let you take 50% damage from a ally. Let's say that that's the essential mechanic that you're trying to go for, but that could be played off in giving them some sort of blessing, or it could be having to hold a shield and having a skill that lets you step in front of that character, but letting them decide entirely how they want to do something like that is a a whole other type of player agency that I really enjoy. And that's something you see in um, video games now, like Baldur's Gate. You see a lot of that where you're able to kind of do the same thing in a bunch of different ways. I think it gets more difficult in softer systems. I think you do need more of a hard system of magic in order to give more player agency, if that makes sense. Yes. And you need to define what all those things are, which leads to rule clarity. Clearly defining your rules for both the spell casting and the management of resources from say, do you have components in your system? Do you have a limited number of spells they can cast per day? Uh, uh, do you have slots, slots per day? Do you run by a point system, a mana system? That has to be clearly defined so the players can understand what happens when they use their magic and how much resources they have left and etc. like that. It also plays a part in them determining their strategy and tactics in their gameplay. And it's important to keep track of all of your rules to keep them consistent. Yeah, consistency. You've probably heard it a million times, but we mean it. Consistency is key. When you hear that, people are not joking. In every field you've heard that in, I I can assure you it's true. Um, and uh, for us, all three of us actually use uh, World Anvil, as we've mentioned before. Uh, we are specifically, Daz and I are building our systems, Meaty Bones and Quests and Quarrels over on World Anvil. Um, it's a really great resource. Um, one of the big parts that I struggle with with rule clarity is really keeping consistent with the text when you're writing and making sure that all of the rules that run in a similar format are actually consistently formatted. That's very important. Um, if you read through any of the big TTRPG books, you'll see they all have very consistent writing. Rules that run in a similar vein are all written with the same language, almost to a T with just like a word or two changed. Uh, that's really important. And uh, applications and websites like World Anvil help us keep track of that and keep it all consistent. I like to use variables on World Anvil, which essentially would let me put in a term like bless, which is a uh, advantage on a d6 roll. And then I can copy and paste that exact definition in anywhere that I want to use it. So I don't have to worry about typing it exactly the same. I can just pop it in anytime I want. Uh, World Anvil has a lot of really great features that make building a system really, really easy. And uh, we'll be coming out with a series on our blog over on vredamedia.ca covering some of the finer points of creating your very own magic systems, much like the ones we're using for Meaty Bones and Quests and Quarrels. One of the things that we will touch on in those blogs are the types of magic. How do you break down the magic in your world? Uh, for me, for Quests and Quarrels, it starts breaking up between inherited magic and learned magic. Um, so inherited magic are the abilities that you're born with. These are often tied to lineage or innate qualities. Uh, 
in quests and quarrels specifically, these are your nature magics and your divine magics. When it comes to learn magics, these are things that you acquire along your journey. Uh, they can be through study, training, external sources, warlock packs, whatever. Maybe you found a magic sword on the side of the road and it started talking to you. Guess what? Now you have a learn magic skill. <laughs> so there's all all sorts of different types of magic. It's not just inherent magic or learned. Uh, other systems use magic schools to break up their types of magic. You know, if you're talking video games and things like that, then you have things like, you know, the materia system in Final Fantasy VII or uh, the sort of absorbing of magic from enemies in Final Fantasy VIII. Um, so there's been a lot of stuff like that where it's instead of it being like, I am an ice mage, it's, oh yeah, I have this glowing sphere that gives me ice magic. I'm going to put it in my armor and then immediately be able to use that thing. So there's like resource-based magic. Yeah, there's all sorts of magic you can use for almost any type of setting. <laughs> and on top of that, you have to decide what type of magic you're going to be using and how people can interact with that magic, but also the amount of magic in general. Uh, we touched on it a little bit in the literature section, but there's all levels of magic that can occur in your world. You have settings that can include everyday magic where anybody can use magic. It's very commonplace. Uh, you don't have to hide anything. It's very out in the open. Um, you can have, uh, settings where it's kind of common knowledge where people have shared understanding of how magic operates but it's not as common as everyday magic where you might just be using it to clean up your house or mix in your coffee kind of thing um further than that you go into restricted magic where different types of magic tend to be limited or controlled in some way and knowledge of that magic is restricted to certain groups above that you get into privilege. This can include uh, magic that is rare or an exclusive power that is possessed by very specific groups or uh, individuals. This is often associated with noble bloodlines, ancient lineages, or specific chosen individuals. You'll, sometimes you'll see chosen divine individuals that are given magic where others have no access to magic whatsoever. Hidden gets uh, into magical elements that are concealed or unknown to the general population. Uh, you'll see secrets of ancient magic or forgotten arts that are deliberately kept hidden. And then you get into the completely unknown magic, where magic is mysterious and completely undiscovered. Uh, characters, societies, uh, the world in general are completely unaware of the existence of this hidden magic. So it really does fall on a spectrum, but defining where your setting falls on that spectrum is really, really important when it comes to the Game Master perspective of magic systems. Yes, this it, the Game Master is in charge of bringing all this to the players. How are you going to present it? How are the players going to go through it? That is important. And it's especially important when you're creating your villains, your monsters, and obstacles such as traps. What magics are your villains going to have at what certain levels? Are, what are they going to do special against your players? That type of thing all has to fit within the system and the amount of magic that is within the, the campaign setting that you are either running or you're creating for yourself. And so that was where your consistency must remain between the rules and the amount of magic. You want to maintain some kind of like coherence between the actual system and the settings that you're telling, the stories that you're telling, um, to keep your players engaged and tailoring those encounters to your players is incredibly important. You're spending, I, I mean, I'm not a GM, I have not GM, but I assume that you're spending a majority of your time tailoring your encounters to your players. That's probably going to be the biggest thing. Uh, correct me if I am wrong, Des. <laughs> oh, no, that is that is something you do all the time. It's like the the essence of being a game master. Yeah. So you, you just want to make sure um, that you're giving your players those options, the variety. Uh, I know from a player perspective, that's really where I come in from this, is 
I love having a, a diverse range of magical options during character creation. I don't really like to get pigeonholed into one type of school or magic. Um, I like to pick and choose. I'm, 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 I'm a little indecisive. I like to, um, I'm not a min-maxer. I would never call myself that because that is kind of the opposite of what I do. I create terrible, terrible characters because most systems don't let me just create the character that I want. I have to fit it into like a bard that does this very specific thing, which is great. I think uh, the way that bards are generally handled, especially with subclasses, and this doesn't just go for bards, it goes for any magic class. As long as you're giving them options within that class, you'll be fine. I think I'm in a bit of an outlier in uh, that, in that I like a lot of customization. I really, really, really want to pick and choose exactly what I want my character to be like. Um, I like coming up with kind of out there ideas and then really, really flavoring a character to fit that specific idea. But as long as your magic system allows her some sort of creative character use for spells, I think you're pretty golden. Just for me, uh, I think it's important for a GM to encourage your players to at least describe how they cast their spells, because that's kind of the base level of flavor you can get. If nothing else, you can describe what your thing looks like, the color of your spell, the way that it shoots out of your hand. Depending on the system, you do have some customizability in there, even if it's not built in in the hard magic. But just make sure that you're giving your players those options. I think it keeps their attention a bit more. And make sure that the systems are intuitive. Uh, you don't want to spend your time reminding your players about how things work. And as a player, we don't want to spend all our time asking you how the same thing works over and over and over again because it's confusing. Make your rules clear. Easy to read, uh, easy to use, easy to remember. It just makes the whole player experience so much better. It doesn't necessarily have to be easy to play. There's generally a learning curve with most games, and I think players understand that. that there's going to be a bit of a learning curve when they first start a new game. But don't challenge them with it. Don't make it like an SAT exam to learn how to play your game. <laughs> You're yeah, going to try people away. Please, I know that there's going to be some people who are like, I like the old way of doing things of, you know, I want to know that I alone can do all of this stuff and I'm going to stack 17 things. For the love of everything holy, most people are probably not going to desire that, especially when we have so many games that we can play that simplify and streamline and make things more accessible. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say make a one-page RPG that has three rules. No, that's. I, I think there's absolutely a place in the middle where you can have a complicated game that is simple to understand. There are lots of them. Just be kind to your players, especially right now. Like we were talking in the news segment earlier, there's a lot of change happening in the TTRPG community. A lot of really great change. I think it's a very positive thing. I think we're headed in a positive way. But I think that also calls for a lot of understanding and compassion and patience. I think there's definitely a place for those really, really complicated systems. And you have absolutely have an audience with those complicated systems. But not every system needs to be complicated for complexity's sake. You know, you can still make a very complicated system that's, yes, uses clarity and uh, clarity, consistency. Consistency, consistency, and never forget flavor. Yeah, magic systems can really lead to unbelievable TTRPG moments. Today, we talked about magic in literature, a magic realism bent, which is very different from a soft world or a hard world build for our magic systems. We talked about what magic means to literature and how you can start integrating some magic into the fantasy or science fantasy things that you yourself are doing. We also talked about the starting points of developing magic for a TTRPG, 
If you want more on magic systems and it, to get into the nitty gritty of developing something for your TTRPG or your literary sphere, you can check out our Not Dead News blog, where we throw weekly articles on magic systems, writing fiction, and TTRPGs online. You can see that at freydamedia.ca slash wadi. That is V-R-A-E-Y-D-A-M-E-D-I-A dot C-A slash W-A-D-Y. And with that, all you rebels, writers, and gamers, we're wrapping up another mind-bending episode of We Aren't Dead Yet, your go-to for all things TTRPG and Specklet. Stay wild, curious, and keep defying the ordinary. Until next time, hit up Wadi at vredamedia.ca slash Wadi. That's V-R-A-E-Y-D-A-M-E-D-I-A dot C-A slash W-A-D-Y. Like and subscribe, share with your friends, check out our merch store. We'll see you next week for more news, views, and hullabaloos. So keep the fires burning, the dice rolling, and the pages turning. And remember, there's always something we can do, because we We aren't aren't dead yet. yet.